You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and celebrate the soft, squishy, local resilience that makes people so much more than data objects. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, the authors of the new book, Cynical Theories, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. We have to try and bring people together with what is good, our innate sense of fairness and reciprocity. Helen and James will be tracing the way postmodern art theory got mistakenly applied to the quest for social justice, untethering progressives from conditions on the ground, and trapping us instead in a linguistic prison of triggers and shame. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. First, a shout out to Team Human friend and member and past guest, uh, Dr. Mark Filippi, who has stage four lymphoma and is, well, doing his best to uh, promote his own vitality and longevity uh, through this challenge. Our, uh, our hearts are really with him. He's a, a He's a special, special human being, a great Rangers fan, Mets fan, and Giants fan. And um, we're hoping to keep his soul around with us as long as possible. Team Human is an entirely team-sponsored affair. You can become a subscriber by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. And you can get free books and t-shirts and access to our Discord discussion, as well as access to the premium episodes we're releasing every other week. Last week, we released my opening talk from DisinfoCon 1999, where I was warning that the counterculture needed to accept victory. And there's a sneak peek preview available on your regular Team Human podcast feed, but you can listen to and watch the full talk by supporting Team Human on Patreon at patreon.com slash teamhuman or going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. And there you can then join Team Human members like Rosanna O'Dell, Richard Stokes, Kara Kreck, Christopher Stevenson, and Cassandra Duran. Thanks to you all for being on Team Human. I've been getting a ton of email and beautiful tweets this week. People saying, I heard you on Netflix. I heard all the stuff that you've been talking about for the last 10, 15 years, except it's not you saying it and nobody's crediting you. This is your stuff. They're, they're doing all your stuff. And it's very sweet. It's really, it's heartening to know that people recognize my words and ideas. They're coming through now in a movie, a new documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, which has a whole bunch of the uh, tech guys who are in places like Google and Facebook who are doing all the stuff that people like me have been complaining about for 10 or 15 years. And they're admitting it out in the open. And the language they're using, the, the structures they're using to describe what they're doing is the stuff that comes from, you know, books, by people like me. And no, people like me are not in this movie because we're not tech people. And so, yeah, I understand there's some consternation that people are concerned, people who've been listening for a long time, the, the, the people who've been reading my stuff and the stuff of other uh, tech critics since the late 90s are thinking, hey, um, you're, you're ripping off their stuff. Um, 
And I got the, the best was a, an Instagram uh, post from uh, my goddaughter, who's a, a social media influencer, uh, Alexis Wren. She didn't criticize anything. She just said, there's this new movie out and look at the work of this guy that's been talking about this for a long time and linked to one of my lectures and books. And that felt so much more positive to me than, hey, you know, look at what happened here. Hey, this, this, this is by him. And I'm learning through this. I mean, yeah, at the first moment, of course, I'm going to feel a little miffed. I'm, I'm human. But I like to think that the folks in this in this movie, the ones who are saying the kinds of stuff I've been saying about, you know, if you're not the, the customer, you're the product, or you have to program or be programmed and talk about surveillance capitalism and all that, that they were at least inspired by my work, by Presenchok, by Programmer Be Programmed. I mean, they were, they were emailing me back when those books came out. So I feel good about this, that we've won some people. We're, we're, we're winning over converts who are actually inside the companies. So sure, they'll talk about the reptile brain and how technology is colonizing people and surveillance capitalism, and that's a good thing. Yes, it there is a legacy to this. There's those of us who've been talking about this. Uh, Andrew Keene, Sherry Turkle, Nicholas Carr, um, Cliff Nass, uh, Cliff Stoll, Richard Barbrook, uh, Mark Stallman, Jerry Mander, Tim Wu, um, even Rafi, the, the children's singer, has a book on the dark side of social media and what it's doing to kids. And all of those folks, including me, I mean, we'd been ridiculed for decades for talking this way. I remember when Wired blacklisted me for talking about the influence of corporate capitalism on the way these platforms were going to work and the problems with the attention economy. I remember the Wall Street Journal calling me a crazy conspiracy theorist for talking about the feedback loop between people and these technologies and how it was going to exacerbate polarity. But tough right? That was my job. That's what I did. I lived through it so that these people could then take the torch and go further. So yeah, there is something we have to adapt to, which is we've been here. It's sort of like when you've, when you've liked a, a local bar band for a long time, and then suddenly they're playing in big arenas and all people are buying their stuff at the mall and you want people to know that, well, yeah, but I was with them, you know, five years ago. So yeah, you know, so I got a call from, from one of the folks at Center for Humane Technology that their new effort at helping people um, think about these issues after the movie, that they want to call it Team Humanity. And would it, it, not would it be okay with me, but they wanted to make sure I'm not too mad about that um, because I do this thing called Team Human. Um, and yeah, I mean, of course, initially I'm a little shocked, but I, I'm not concerned for them using the name. I'm not concerned for, for me or my feelings like I'm going to say something bad about them. I'm not. They're, they're our partners. We are in solidarity. Team Human, Team Humanity, whatever you want to call it, just be human and do good things. But the 100,000 people or whatever it is that listen to this podcast or read my books or know about Team Human, that they're going to see Team Humanity and think, oh, look at these guys. Look at their taking our name. They're... And that's our reaction. That's our social media-inspired competitive capitalist reaction to someone using something so close to our name, right? But 
we shouldn't react. We have to respond instead and realize that credit for a word, who cares, right? I don't want credit. I want change. I want social change. So if, if they want to use the words, use our quotes, use our sayings, and even act like they came straight out of your, your, your dream space, that's fine, right? What we should look at instead are the potential genuine problems with the kind of the more tech bro-driven technological reformation movement. And for me, the bigger problem here is they're using kind of uh, uh, more technology to save technology. It feels like a lot of the solutions they come up with are more from the techno-solutionist basket. So the frame of the work is, well, there's all these technologies acting on people in these really nasty ways. Let's teach these companies how to make technologies that act on people in better ways. And the real answer, of course, is a whole lot less technology, is not even looking at technology as something that's done to people, but looking at technology as a set of tools that people can use, that humans are the active players, right? It's not technology acting more humanely to people. It's people using technologies with one another in a more human-centered way. And the other big concern we should have about the folks in The Social Dilemma is most of them are still super big investors in the companies they're criticizing. So they're saying that what Facebook and Google and Snapchat and all these companies are doing are as big a threat, a big and existential threat to the human species as climate change, that they're going to provoke civil war. If they're really as bad as climate change, which I agree, then how can you be invested in that company? It's like it's like uh, being invested in Exxon Mobil uh, while you're talking about the oil companies destroying the, the environment. Those are the places we can critique, but we have to do it in solidarity. They are on our side. They're trying to promote the human agenda in the face of overwhelmingly negative technologies. We have to look at these guys not as competitors, but as the first people we've been able to win over from inside the belly of the beast, that we've chipped off the first ones. And our job now is to connect these guys to the greater enterprise. That is the cure. That's the cure for these guys too, because they're raised in this tech world, the sort of the white tech bro culture, so much of what they do and, and, and believe is success is based on the novelty, the newness, the originality of their ideas. You know, we just had, you know, Jim Rutt on the show, another a guy from this movement, and they're, they're uh, aggressive and positive guys, but he even said on it, we look forward, we only look forward, we never look back, we only look forward. And that's a problem, right? That disconnects you from your legacy. You can't just look forward. There's the back. There's everybody here. We're all with you. Don't look forward. We're here. We're here. And I get it. These are, these are aggressive people, right? These are people who've won. They've won millions and billions of dollars. They've created the biggest companies. They're more aggressive. They're more uh, motivated in some ways than we are. So even for them just to do this, just to say, hey, you know, these technologies are doing bad things, this 
this feels really hippy dippy already to them. This is, this is so lefty, progressive, weird, touchy feely. So what we really have to do instead of getting defensive or trying to own these memes is welcome them. Right, welcome them. We will be stronger and smarter and better armed with them on our side. Even Team Humanity gets to be on Team Human, whether they know they're on Team Human or not. You're on Team Human. And we've got quite a conversation for you today. If you listened to my monologue last week, it's a really good introduction to the issues we're going to be talking about today. Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay are deeply concerned about the way what's called critical theory is boxing us in or debilitating actual social change. The idea here is that postmodernism was a tool for artists, a way to deconstruct consensus reality and destabilize the dominant cultural narrative. It was stuff like William Burroughs cutting up the New York Times and rearranging it to see what it really means, or adbusters deconstructing and reconstructing advertisements. There, there was a, a movement in, in the late 60s, really coined by Robert Anton Wilson, called Operation Mindfuck. And the idea was that we could tweak reality just a bit, make people a little bit unsure of what is the status quo reality in order to open their heads to suppose new things. So it was Abby Hoffman getting a bunch of yippies to hold hands and then try to raise the Pentagon. It was fake news like Paul Krasner, another uh, a dearly departed uh, Team Human guest, who uh, published the original fake news story that that LBJ had sexually penetrated JFK's exit wound. And it was that that cheeky stuff, that that fun, crazy stuff. That's what's actually been co-opted by the far right. You know, that's Melania at the Republican convention with a chroma key dress. Project what you want onto me, right? But progressives, we applied postmodernism to the serious oppression of women and queer and people of color, and we ended up untethered from the actual conditions on the ground. The facts that were on our side ended up being relegated to the, to the world of reality TV instead of reality. But enough of my analysis. This is some controversial stuff in the current atmosphere, and it might get us a little bit accused of being part of the IDW or something, but this is the first time I've heard all of this expressed in a way that makes real sense to me, both as, as a thinker and as a, as a radical activist and as a, a would-be social change agent. So here's two remarkably cogent thinkers, fresh from the publication of their new book, Cynical Theories, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. I thought one interesting place to start this conversation is, is, I guess, to ask kind of how we got here, which is largely what your what your book does. My daughter is on TikTok. I don't know if you know the app. It's a where kids sort of sing and dance for each other. She was scolded on the app because she um, sang to a uh, a Hamilton song, and she was told by the community that. You're not allowed to sing to Hamilton 
unless you're a person of color. And I thought, oh man, something has gone too far. But it's hard to say anything about it. I could get canceled on Twitter if I talk the truth about TikTok. Nobody wants to be the person to say things have gone too far because it just makes you sound reactionary. There's there's no other way that sounds. (laughs) Right. And your book, Cynical Theories, it kind of traces it back to something that I knew and loved when I was in college, to postmodernism. So when I learned about postmodernism, it was kind of cheeky, if you know what I mean. It was this artsy, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, kind of nothing is real, ontological kind of mind fuck. You know, we even called it in the 60s, they called it Operation Mindfuck, that we would somehow use art and culture and postmodern frames to destabilize the dominant narrative and have more wiggle room and play. And then somehow I've come back and postmodernism's being applied like to the real world somehow. As a sort of um, philosophical thought experiment, Postmodernism really is is quite fun. I I actually enjoy it in a lot of ways. Uh, what if the world were actually meant to be different? When it wasn't really applicable um, to any kind of social engineering, it was mostly uh, annoying, but not too much of a problem. Now that it is so much sort of employed in as as though it is absolutely true, as though the fundamental ideas that Knowledge is a construct of language and language uh, that we use are discourses which are legitimated by powerful forces. So everything ties in together and we're constantly constructing the world in oppressive ways with the way we speak about things. This having become solidified, it's going to lead to what we see now. It's going to lead to to censorship, language policing, to thought policing, to um, trying to ensure that own people are only saying the things that make the world a better place and never saying the things that could possibly cause any kind of oppression. And then as that gets more and more complicated, it's a real minefield that it's it's almost impossible to navigate. Postmodernism came to the United States particularly by being injected into Yale's English department. And it spread very rapidly as a kind of very fashionable new way to do mind-expanding literary criticism. And the feminists took it up as a very powerful tool. Judith Butler was very enamored with what she believed to be the uh, post-structuralism of Michel Foucault, but more particularly Jacques Derrida. But at the same time, it would be impossible not to also name some of the black feminists who were becoming very interested in, interested in these ideas. We have Kimberly Crenshaw, for example, was very interested. Bell Hooks was very interested in postmodernism. So the feminists who were particularly into uh, that style of criticism, whether they were radical feminists types that went on to become the queer theorists, whether they were uh, black feminist types who went on to become intersectionalists, they were the primary importers of the postmodern philosophy into the style of criticism they were doing. And the post-postmodernism at that point, though, was, I mean, people like Roland Barthes and stuff, is that postmodernism? It's, and, and Baudrillard and those guys? It's basically just saying that there's the real world, and then there's all this language we use and symbols we use to to refer to the real world, and then sometimes we start to mistake our symbols and our metaphors for the real world. That kind of that map is the territory problem. 
Yeah, I mean, you you have the 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 structuralists and then the um, the sort of precursors to the postmodernists who are who are looking at the way in which language is um, unreliable, in which we have to only have a set amount of words that we can choose to describe anything. So there's, you know, there's certainly something interesting in there. But um, despite the occasional slipperiness of language, we have used it really quite reliably to build skyscrapers, to understand how the world works, to communicate the deepest human feelings. You know, it's language I, I think is fairly reliable. I don't think anybody has ever said it's believed it to be entirely reliable so the, the whole sort of postmodern uh, wish to to deconstruct our certainties about language are um, unwarranted well you can find you know embedded racism and sexism and all sorts of power stuff in words and then the question is well then do we stop using the word or do we make the word more conscious do we change come up with a new word this is what we describe in, in cynical theories as this shift from postmodernism in its kind of high deconstructive phase to applied postmodernism. That application came from very radical activists who saw the world in a very kind of black and white way in which, you know, there are oppressed groups who are being held down by oppressor groups. And they took on that postmodern theory. All of a sudden you see this increased concern with the dangers of, of the uses of words that could possibly maintain or uh, liberate from, depending on how they're being used, oppression. And so a right and wrong way to use language became very uh, politically actionable uh, by deliberate design in that, that period. So the material impacts are not that interesting to people who have taken on the postmodern line of thought about the importance and power of language. But the symbolic power of language or images or, or representation is, is of utmost importance. And so you see this really bizarre shift of priority. Um, and this is what you, you were talking about from the very beginning when you said, you know, the wrong person of the wrong race was singing from Hamilton. And that's, again, you have this image of, the, of, of somebody who doesn't have the right racial characteristics singing a song that's supposed to be about a certain other racial thing. And this, this juxtaposition creates a symbolic problem. And this is that importation of the postmodern theory into the analysis that more that before that was called critical theory that sees the world split into oppressor and oppressed groups that are in conflict with one another and that that conflict is cultural and that cultural conflict has political implications i mean i was raised as a uh, uh, lefty jewish kid and really deep in my real and implied education was this notion of universal social justice. You know, my grandmother, you know, is a, a old, originally, I guess, a Stalinist, really. But, you know, she marched with Eugene Debs at Union Square in New York and talked about the worker. And, uh, and, and for me, that sort of liberalism meant this sense of universal social justice. And I understand it was slightly selfish that if the Jews liked universal social justice, it was because, well, if there's universal social justice, then there's going to be justice for us too, right? <laughs> it's like the easiest strategy for a, a kind of perpetual immigrant diasporic community is, well, let's just get justice for everyone, and then the Jews will be included in that. But it feels as if what you're describing, this sort of this new version of intersectional social justice, is almost against 
this concept or, or rejects universal social justice as our shared goal. It explicitly does so, yeah. In the um, essay, Mapping the Margins, Kimberly Crenshaw criticizes liberalism for its attempts at universality. She says this is a problem in mainstream liberalism. She advocates that black Americans stop um, saying, I am a person who happens to be black and go straight with I am black, make this absolutely central, have a form of empowerment that is tied entirely to identity. So you just described universal liberalism, which is the dominant still, I think, um, dominant sort of moral structure that we tend to default to, um, which goes very well with our human nature, our, our liking of reciprocity, our fairness. You know, you treat me this way, I'll treat you that way. That That's the best, best part of humanity. And I, I think the opposite, when you were saying we get hu- equal rights for everybody and then that will include the Jews, is of course the opposite of selfish. That's um, precisely what people like Martin Luther King were arguing for and the liberal activists generally. But what they would say, I think, if, if they were to hear you say this, They'd consider you either to be ignorant of um, how race works, and that would be a sign of your privilege, or they would consider you to be cynically attempting to preserve your privilege. I mean, assuming that you are white, they would argue that this universality that you aimed for would be your claim to be recognised as part of the white superior group, because universality didn't actually apply. It didn't apply to... Um, visible racial minorities. So they would read this very cynically as you attempting to pretend that everything is actually absolutely fine as it is, as long as I'm included in among the privileged people. Where it gets tricky for, for me, though, is, I mean, I guess it's getting good, almost too, too personal Jewish, but, but a, a lot of the Jews I knew in the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in America who were social justice, uh, universal social justice people, did also want to be included in what they saw as uh, the dominant white culture. And we're getting, you know, nose jobs, and people were turning their reform synagogues into something that looked much more like churches, trying to look less threatening to, you know, the people that they were that they were with. So, I mean, it's possible that the that the the identity politics pe- politics people do have some. Uh, th- there's something in what they're saying. In other words, that 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 universal social justice in America for a lot of people did mean trying to act or seem more white. I mean, we called the book cynical theories for a reason. There's this very cynical belief that almost pervades everything they do that gives the feeling of, well, we tried liberalism and look at all this bad stuff that's still happening. And so liberalism wasn't good. So let's just get rid of it and try to build something again. And then they say, well, why, you know, they try to dig deeper and say, well, why is liberalism bad? They say, well, because it was constructed by white Western men who have white Western biases. So they must have baked white Western dominance into the system. And so we're going to tear down what it, what exists now and, and start to think about rebuilding with a clear mind that the undue influence of white Western men happened to be the thing that caused it to be a problem. So when you start talking about this attempt, you know, to fit in with you know, white culture. There is the aspect of that where you could say, oh, well, white people are less discriminated against or it's less threatening or whatever. And therefore, people who are not white aspire to act or look or or be accepted as white. 
But there's another way to look at that, which in the context of the United States simply has to be accepted. And anybody who travels outside of uh, the the kind of European or, or or Western context immediately senses this. This is just a matter of being part of a numerical majority versus a numerical minority. Numerical majorities nearly always have the advantage in the sense that everybody kind of looks similar to one another and they have a set of you know assumptions that go along with that. If if we were in Beijing right now and you know we're white, people asking us where are you from would not be <laughs> would not be a peculiar question because if you if you've traveled to China it becomes very very obvious that there are a lot of Chinese people there. <laughs> there are a whole lot of them. And basically everybody, as a matter of fact, there are very, very few people who in China who are white or, or black or of other races. There are some, but they're very, very few. And so the, the script gets flipped and you get a, you get a clear understanding and it, that, that, you know, being a numerical minority carries with it certain things that sometimes are unfair and sometimes are just a consequence of being a numerical minority. So what's the solution to that is exactly the things that Martin Luther King appealed to, exactly the things that we've been talking about under universal social justice or universal liberalism, which is to make those things as irrelevant as you possibly can by removing social significance from, say, racial or other identity categories and that's the exact opposite, again, of what the current movement is doing. In the late 80s and early 1990s, they decided, keeping in track with the very radical, critical movement, new left movement that it came out of, which never stopped doing it going back to the 50s and 60s, they decided to flip over the idea of universal social justice and turn it into group identity-based or positional social justice uh, as meted out by the intersectional framework. And have therefore made a very fractious, balkanized uh, society where the balkanization happens along the lines, not purely of identity group, though that bleeds over, but over whether or not somebody's willing to be politically active as their identity. That's the relevant factor. And most people aren't actually fully aware that that's, that's the variable in play here. In, in the book, you kind of explained that postmodernism has these two main features. And it was funny, as you were explaining these two main features, I kept thinking about Donald Trump and Trumpism. So there was like one main feature of postmodernism is that there's no objective truth, right? That it's all constructivism and that power and hierarchies, you know, they determine what is actually known and what is agreed upon. And as a result, we get a loss of both the individual and the universal, right? So we no longer have an individual and we no longer have a whole. We just have all of these kind of competing reality tunnels about what's going on here and the people who are in power get to say what that is. So there's that sort of relativistic battle for reality as if we're all just on acid and whoever's got the best argument gets to decide what's really happening. And then, which is a fun thing to think about when you're on acid, but not necessarily <laughs> so valuable in, real, in the real world. And then the second idea is that because of that, that language defines reality. And when language defines reality, we get into that modern problem that I only understood because I read this, why 
our intent doesn't matter anymore. All that matters is how what we've said has been received so that you can injure people with your words, no matter how you mean them. Even if you're trying to, to, to stop someone from bleeding to death, if you've used words that person understands differently, then you, you're bad, then you meant it. I think that what we're seeing right right now, this um, much more of a natural human state of being, this is, is what happens if we don't set up systems which require us to think more broadly, to include more viewpoints, to recognise um, the importance of reason and evidence and, and expand our circle of empathy outwards. There, there needs to be an expectation to make sense and be able to back up what you're saying, because what we're seeing now, yes, from the postmodern left and, and from the post-truth right, it, it just seems to be how humans work when we don't have these systems. And because I look at the late medieval period and they're, they're called different things, but there's still that same sort of concept of the dog whistle of what you meant um, under all that, you know, after the Reformation, showing grief for someone who died was a dog whistle that you were actually a Catholic secretly. It's this kind of a thing that just re- repeats um, over and over again within different contexts, unless it is kept in check by an empirical sort of system of epistemology and a consistently universal liberal ethic. I mean, and it's interesting to see that it it affects both sides. So we're post-truth on both sides. We don't, whether it's whether it's Trump on the one side or the most intense social justice warrior on the other, the evidence on the ground is less important than how it feels. So the evidence then becomes kind of injurious to the perceived situation, right? So just me mentioning that is probably considered injurious, right? That's right. That would be because what's happened, and this again is very significant to the postmodern, but it's in general, this whole post-truth phenomenon, uh, as you pointed out, is that the, the, the lived experience and thus the narrative that comes from that lived experience has become the new bid for the dominant form of, a, of, of designing an epistemology, of, of deciding how we know what is and is not true. We are actually very much in a world now where people who have a uh, ha- have less of a grasp on truth, uh, or less of a, it's not a grasp on truth. It's less of a desire to to defer to the truth or willingness to defer to the truth, are replacing that with the feeling of their own lived experience, their own sense of importance, <laughs> really, in terms of what a narrative like I'm educated on this subject is a narrative there, and. Uh, that becomes very central to them that, you know, I am the expert. Uh, you hear this frequently in the current movement here. I'm the expert of my own experiences. You you do have this move. And, and within postmodernism, it's very clear. You saw Jacques Derrida talking about that meaning is connected to, you know, it only exists within the discourse and how one word relates to another word. Uh, meaning is infinitely deferred. There is no, I can't say dog or tree and then point to a dog or a tree and convey what I mean by those those syllables. And then in, w- w- with Foucault, you had the idea that the political ramifications of knowledge and, and truth claims create a separation of the person himself from reality. You can't have direct access to reality. Your, your experience of reality is always mediated through politics and through the way that, that the discourse has shaped those things. 
And so you have this drive to strip away knowledge and replace it with unmediated lived experience as the new arbiter of truth. I am the expert of my own experiences is the phrase you hear from the left. And it's justified in part by the fact that, you know, the, the, the knowledge that gets stored and who's allowed to declare knowledge are, are partly the result of, of, you know, corrupt racist, uh, uh, you know, hegemonic institutions. To some extent, that's true, right? You know, what science gets stored was, you know, one side and not Willem Reich, or, you know, what, what psychology gets stored is Freud and not Jung or something. Right, right, right. There's some reality to that, but then what happens is then we reject the entirety of it. You know, we reject science and evidence-based argumentation on the grounds that, well, what you get to call evidence is itself so restricted by the the you know the prejudices of the evidence gatherers that we might as well abandon evidence altogether. Very much, I see this within with almost everything to do with the woke uh, ideology and movement is this desire to see the world in the way that it was a long time ago, but not the way that it is now. Because viewing the world the way it was a long time ago is politically useful for what they want to try to achieve now. It's, it's almost like they're trying to conceive of gender relations and, and sexuality relations and race relations the way that they were in the 1950s or sometimes even earlier. And there's a lot of hearkening back to slavery. And I don't mean to say, oh, well, slavery happened. They're not just saying slavery happened and it had these ramifications. They're saying that there are things like post-slavery stress syndrome or something along these lines, and, and the transgenerational trauma of slavery. So they're saying that the fact of slavery, which ended over 150 years ago, is still materially relevant today, not in some you know economic argument, but in the sense that it's actually like the thinking about the fact that slavery happens upsets people and causes them literally massive trauma that's de- debilitating. So you have a, a huge distortion there, and then on the other hand, the other thing that really should be pointed out since it came up is that, yeah, the post-truth right, uh, Donald Trump coming to mind, Donald Trump's clearly doing whatever else he's doing. He's also doing a deconstruction of the office of the presidency from within it. The angry reactionary right has realized the power of postmodern deconstruction. That's more or less what 4chan exists to do. That's why we have the OK symbol being white supremacy now is because a 4chan troll decided to make that joke and, and basically deconstruct the woke movement by inserting ridiculous things into it. To think that postmodernism would not have been taken up and utilized by people who already were playing fast and loose with the truth in order to achieve their political agendas is just naive. It's just utterly naive to think, oh, it's a left-wing tool, so we don't do that. No, that's utterly naive. But when Donald Trump puts a video on Twitter of him being reelected to the presidency, you know, every year to infinity, that, that is a that is a parodic deconstruction of the idea of the two term presidency. There's so much there that somebody who's who's well versed in postmodernism would clearly understand as having derived similar tools uh, to achieve similar jobs, which is political power. It, it, it seems to me what you were suggesting is that both the extreme wing of the kind of postmodern critical theory social justice warrior camp, as well as the post-truth kind of Trumpist camp, that it, it feels to me like like you're suggesting that both of these sides are missing both empathy and evidence. In other words, 
which seems to be a dangerous combination of things to be missing. Yeah, it, it is very revealing that there is uh, psycho, psychopathic, narcissistic traits in the extremes. Obviously, we're, we're not going to be saying everybody on the right or left is is a psychopath, but I I think that that what this is is just the the worst of human nature when we're not trying to con- contain it we're not trying to mitigate it we're not trying to bring out the best of us our our empathy our compassion our humanism our sort of sense of justice and and fairness when we divide into uh tribes with very specific and zero sum agendas i think this brings out the worst of our human nature our, our tribal and territorial instincts and then reason and, and evidence and, and empathy just go out of the window one of the things i think societies tend to do they evolve over over time they develop norms over time and i strongly suspect that there are a handful of enduring problems that all societies and all times must face because of the certain certain tail end uh, features of of human variation, and so societies evolve norms. If I might speculate, largely to try to minimize the negative impacts of these various different problems. And I'd focus mostly here on the on the sociopath problem because when you have a very disruptive technology, whether it's a printing press you know, 400 years ago, whether it's the internet in the past 30 to 40 years that comes along, all of the stable societal structures, social norms that were managing to some degree the sociopath problem, those go out the window. And so now all of a sudden, in particular, you have a wholly new medium in which people with very little empathy, very little remorse, very little concern for the truth, and a lot of concern for their own to own advantage can start to push narratives in a new way that nobody quite knows how to deal with. So a non-sociopathic person will get on the internet, for example, and operate under the assumption that everybody that they're talking with is a good faith actor who is trying to be genuine, whereas a sociopath can very easily manipulate that. And given the anonymity, given the ease of access, given the broadcast ability it becomes very, very straightforward for these people to be able to game this new system very well. And of course, that creates an incentive structure for them to play that system and play it well. And we have not developed norms that, as Helen was saying, would lead us in this new context, this new information era context, to be able to mitigate those problems uh, effectively and push us back toward the best of human nature, given the new reality. Right. And what you're describing, that structure then reifies this kind of postmodern view of things. You are as powerful as the group of followers you have. In other words, your your tribe defines who you are. And if you don't have any followers, then it's as if you do not exist. Your experience no longer matters. It feels very much like social media has brought postmodernity into reality. All you have to do is cry into your own lived experience, which nobody's allowed to deny, and you can get away with literally anything. The level of capacity that a small proportion of exploitative individuals could use that for is just unfathomable. And of course, that starts to become the thing that that, that, that drives everything because normal people don't perceive sociopaths if they're doing their thing right as sociopaths. So they then defend the bad behavior of the person they believe to be on their side because of the, the social identity factors involved. So the, the worst of humanity, meaning people, whether they're sociopathic or not, who are trying to take advantage of a bad situation for their own personal gain, 
end up driving all of the narratives, whether that drives us off of a cliff as, as a society or not. And that, that's, that's the problem I think we face. And the answer, of course, is the, to do the opposite, defer to objective standards, defer to objective truth, slow down and, and try to get things right. Ignore people who are actually literally marginalize the views of people who are not willing to defer to objective standards and objective truth because they're not playing the the liberal game anymore and they're not actually advancing liberal society anymore and that th- that's bad for everybody. It to me and and it's the what you're describing is sort of the the vulnerabilities of a digital media environment as McLuhan might call it. You know that everything becomes one or zero or yes or no and ex- and ex- extreme and it becomes really hard to maintain any wiggle room, any paradox, any liminal, any unresolved ambivalences, which is what ambiguity is what it means to be human, is to be able to maintain, you know, what is the difference between a man and a woman? I don't know. Let's have sex and find out. You know, to, to be able to remain open and 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 skewed and blurry, it shouldn't be a luxury, but it feels it feels to me that that, that part of the problem here is that we knew this, you know, I, I feel like the psychedelic postmodernists understood this, you know, Robert Anton Wilson or, or uh, Korzybski, they understood that we were all in our own, each of us in our own reality tunnels, and none of them were quite right, but that there's also a real world of that we're navigating at the same time. So the only thing we could do is don't fully believe anything, trust that other people know stuff that you don't know and do your best to somehow get along with all of this doubt in what's happening here. And it feels it feels like we've grown allergic to doubt, to ambivalence, to ambiguity. That's right. I mean, I think the first postmodernists, they were trying to cast radical doubt on everything. But what we are seeing now as things have solidified is not a radical doubt, even though um, it is held that we cannot um, access truth absolutely and that everything is a social construct. It is abs- They are absolutely certain that uh, very specific, very simplistic powers of systems of power and privilege exist. And so we're seeing much more of of a war of narratives. This is the narrative which you must accept. You must talk, you must speak it, you must speak it in the right way. We're looking again, which I think is a a, a sort of a human, um, very useful trait where we can quickly interpret other people, find out where they are coming from. They will use certain words and we will interpret those words, usually with quite a high degree of accuracy to see where they stand on on anything. But when we're in this state of really everybody is is seeing an emergency on on the the right and on the left they're seeing the other side as a state of emergency. It's hyper alert. And so the allowable range of language and views that people can have in any position is is just drawing in to a ridiculous extent. Well, it, it, it became in part, it was part of the kind of network theory that came along with the internet, though. When the net started, we started to talk about everybody as nodes, and then theories came out that said, oh, no, it's not the nodes, it's the links between the nodes. So all we are is a series of links, and what you are are the things that are linked to you. So your identity is your linkage. And it feels like that's sort of what happens. And then you lose, you lose a sense of autonomy. 
when that happens. And if you gain any autonomy, then that autonomy is now privilege. So you can't even even touch it. Now, I don't want to be, you know, IDW, whatever they call it, intellectual dark web. I've been invited to those Zoom webinars, and it is a bunch of well-meaning white guys with a lot of systems theory or complexity theory behind them wanting to, you know, come up with a new game, a new roadmap for civilization and 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 resent this stuff on a level that that bothers me. But at the same time, I do feel that fascism is not just Trump. Fascism is almost an atmosphere in which culture happens. So we end up with the sort of fascistic strains on on all sides. You know, and it, and, and the saddest part about it is that it to me anyway is that it disables humanism it disables what you what you call you know you're calling liberalism it it disables the common drive for a universal social justice and a universal human project and that's a problem for me cuz i'm here i'm the voice of team human right that's been that's the whole thing i'm after is to say find the others first find the others like you then find the others who are not like you and See in their eyes, establish rapport, and that will lead to universal solidarity of humans against our truly common enemies, which are, you know, climate change and capitalism and oppression and all that. So how do we get back? What's the road home? We have to try and bring people together with what is good and our our innate sense of fairness and reciprocity and our our respect for for evidence and reason and that you know that, that very sort of broadly liberal humanist empiricist idea the problem is we've been told that this is a bit embarrassing if we think that um what is often called as enlightenment um values is a is a is a positive thing it's it's either extremely naive and outdated you can get okay boomered um about this but i don't think we should think of this as going backwards and i think that's something that that people can say often without meaning that they actually want to to reverse um anything but but we want to continue a liberal project. A liberal project is inherently progressive because it is problem solving. It's always trying to make things a little bit more fair, a little bit more um, reasonable, evidence, kind, compassionate. So I think we need to try and think of a way to talk about in one sense, yes, going to something that we had very recently, which was that universal idea that colorblindness, not noticing people's race, which isn't the same thing as not noticing racism, is actually a good thing, where identity categories shouldn't have any moral significance at all, although they can be important and interesting about people, and try to take that somewhere forwards rather than allow um, people on the social justice left to say this is a, a backwards um, move or a trying to preserve the status quo. I think what we're all worried about is that the, the populist right and the social justice left is now the status quo. And it's actually quite radical to challenge this with liberalism. What's been going on is that we've been so comfortable in, in liberal values now for so long that people have lost sight of 
the the need and the the ability to stand up and defend liberal ethics and liberal civics and liberal p- uh, principles of, of even epistemology and knowledge. And they don't understand how important it is to be able to do that. And they don't understand the fundamental principles that have been making their society work so well. Liberalism doesn't actually have a status quo. The argument is always we have to get away from the status quo. We have to get away from the status quo. The status quo is bad. The status quo is oppressive. Liberalism is inherently inherently produces a moving society. It's never actually stable. It's not true that it always moves in a progressive direction and kind of the most pure, clean sense. It often moves in a sawtooth, but liberalism doesn't have a status quo. It doesn't stay put. And so to reframe the discussion as the social justice people do, that liberalism itself is the status quo is a complete misunderstanding and misrepresentation of liberalism. And so what we need to move forward are people who understand liberalism, understand why it works, understand how it works, and are able to articulate clearly why it is the epistemological high ground, why it's the ethical high ground, why it's the moral high ground. And and, in basically every domain of thought that you can imagine, it possesses the high ground. Well, it's also a matter of understanding liberalism less as a set of rules written down by a bunch of white dudes in the 1600s, you know, and rather liberalism is kind of a standing wave that may have begun as far back as the Torah, you know, looking at how do we as humans participate in the improvement of social conditions for everyone, you know, but it's a standing wave. It's an organizational pattern that moves through time rather than this static thing that we have to argue about. That is very true. I I think it's an attitude above all. So a liberal in one situation is not going to be arguing for exactly the same principles as a liberal in a different time or a different context, because it's, it's always a sort of reforming and trying to make things gradually better. On one side, we, we have the conservatives who criticise liberals for not respecting traditions enough, uh, trying to progress too far. I mean, I know that, that liberal often is understood as meaning left in the US, but even in its philosophical sense of always seeking um, greater freedom, greater kindness and inclusion, conservatives will often argue that this is too individualistic. It it breaks down things like um, family structures, gender roles, um, religion, and all these things which, yes, liberals, to be honest, they don't necessarily think that preserving traditions and institutions is a good thing in itself. We need to have reasons for preserving anything, and that is that it contributes to a liberal society. And if we then have the... Um, the the really sort of radical I, I want to say progressive but in a revolutionary way on the left we have the liberals then trying to to hold them back somewhat saying let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater let's not go quite that fast let's think about what we're doing and do it in stages so it generally means that to have that liberal impulse is to annoy people on both sides um quite consistently but if there wasn't us in the middle if we didn't have quite a lot of um of support generally for this uh, reforming 
and conserving um, impulse that that we have, we would be at a, in a constant state of civil war. And that's what we're going to have to see. I mean, we've done this before as a civilization. We've moved into new media environments. You know, the the invention of scripture. We had to have ten commandments even to figure out how to live in such a world. The the you know the invention of the printing press led to the Protestant Reformation and a whole new legal system and 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 uh, and the Enlightenment. And now you know the invention of broadcast and digital media is forcing us towards you know really reckoning with the ontological relativism that all of these new media structures unleash and we've got to somehow forge a new rapprochement between the various groups and identities and sensibilities that that have been amplified i mean i hate to say that the message of of cynical theories is be less cynical be more nice but in some ways it is you know be you know think about the, the, the harm that we're doing, believe anything, but could we be less rigid about it, be more charitable? I feel like it's easier for my listeners to be charitable to the Trump people, you know, that we've talked a lot about how do you see the person wearing the MAGA hat? How do you look in their eyes and realize they don't necessarily hate you, you know, that they also want a good life, that they also want to love their kids in their neighborhood, that they want to walk around freely. And in some ways, I find we're more charitable with them than we are with each other. I'm feeling like this is, as James is suggesting, so much a product of this digital media environment. And, you know, I've talked about the polarities, but the the feedback loops that happen, that they, these things, they spin out of control. It's almost like centrifugal force that when they iterate and iterate, they end up leading to these, to these extremes that are not really reflecting the vast majority of how real people feel, that real white people really just want to connect with real black people. They really do want to make things better for everybody. They want to, white and black people want to get married and have sex and make babies and share the bounty, you know, <laughs> of, of, of human experience. In, in some ways, these, these academic theories have, have been misapplied and really abused. I don't even think the people who abused them fully realized what they would unleash by doing that. I guess what I want to do really is just, I, I want to thank you, uh, both of you, for, for being on Team Human and for your, for your dangerous but highly empathetic work, really. I feel like your, your book is the, is the best argument I've found yet to, to transcend this false categorization and to embrace uh, once again, to embrace our shared humanity. Thank you. That's uh, that's a wonderful thing to hear. <laughs> that's that's what we hoped to do. So I'm glad that the the message seems to have resonated. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guests today were the authors of Cynical Theories, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. You can find out more about them and also become a supporting member of the team at teamhuman.fm. That's where you can also sign up to get access for our off-week special episodes from The Vault. And this week, that would be my introduction to DisinfoCon in 1999. And last one was a conversation I had in 1992 with Timothy Leary. So until next time, please stay safe, stay human. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. <laughs>